So welcome to session two of Keys to Health, Wholeness and Fruitfulness. As we continue the quest we're on to bring together truth from the Bible and wisdom from the medical world in order to uncover how to be healthy, whole disciples of Jesus whose lives really count. And the key question that we're asking is this. What does it mean to be a redeemed, restored child of God living in an unredeemed, unrestored world? And if we wanted a complete answer to this, we have to take into account that we're whole people, spirit, mind and body. And today we're going to consider the most fundamental part of who we are, our spirit. Now, before Adam and Eve sinned, their spirits were connected to God. And that meant that they were totally accepted. They were completely secure and they had a great sense of significance. I suppose we could say, in short, they were whole and healthy. Now, God warned Adam that if he ate from the tree in the garden, he would die. Now, he did eat, didn't he? Did he die? Well, not immediately, at least not physically, although that did eventually follow. But he did immediately die spiritually. His spirit was cut off from God. And he lost that significance and security and acceptance. So all of us who are descendants of Adam, we inherited that. We were born with our spirit disconnected from God. And the Bible goes so far not just to describe our spirits as gravely ill, but to say that they are dead. And it's essentially because of that that God sent Jesus. And Jesus said this about the reason he came. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. John 10 verse 10. What did Adam lose? Life. What did Jesus come to give us? Life, spiritual life. And so at the moment you turned to Jesus and you made him your Lord, your spirit was reconnected to God. Your spirit came back to life. And that returned you to the position that Adam and Eve had before they sinned. So our deepest needs for security, significance and acceptance genuinely are now perfectly met in Jesus. And the fact that your spirit, what I like to call the real you, because it's kind of the most fundamental bit of you really, the fact that your spirit has been 100% restored to how God intended it to be is potentially amazing news for your health and your wholeness and your fruitfulness. But... There are three significant dangers we face that means we actually may not experience the full benefits of being spiritually alive, even though we are. And the first danger is that we can live as though nothing has changed. See, we were born without that relationship to God as our father that we were always meant to have. And that meant that we lived quite a lot of our lives as spiritual orphans. We didn't feel secure We were constantly searching for love and acceptance. We didn't know our true identity as children of God. Now, if you follow Jesus, you are not an orphan any longer. 
And you know, you haven't just been adopted by God, you have become an actual, real son or daughter of the King of Kings. Jesus talked about us being born of the Spirit, which is what happens when you choose to follow Jesus. And so just as a child carries its parents' DNA, you now carry your heavenly Father's Spirit. So in other words, you are his real child, not just an adopted child. But it's easy to stay in the mindset of an orphan because we've been in it for so long. See, perhaps you've been taught that, yes, your sins have been forgiven, but you still feel that you're the same no-good rotten person underneath as you kind of always were, guilty, ashamed, condemned, with a sense that when God looks at you, he kind of raises an eyebrow and it's like, oh, it's you again, is it? sense that he's disappointed in you. Now, don't get me wrong, we do all sin from time to time, don't we? However, what's interesting, if you look in your New Testament, is that it no longer uses the word sinner to describe people who follow Jesus. That's reserved for people who don't yet know him. The word it uses for Christians is best translated as a holy one. Listen to the force of this incredible verse. For our sake, he, that's God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him to be sin so that we might become righteousness. You know, you weren't just covered with the righteousness of God so that when God looks at you, it's okay because he doesn't see you, he sees Jesus. No, you have actually become the righteousness of God at the deepest level of your being. So when God looks at you, he sees you just as you are. And you know what? He absolutely delights in you. But if we continue to believe the messages that the world out there throws at us, or if we tend to receive the messages from our past unpleasant experiences or the failures that we have in the present, we will tend to continue to live as an orphan. Truth on its own doesn't set you free, does it? Jesus said it's knowing the truth that matters. Now, we've done the hard work for you. We've gathered together some amazing true facts from God's word, and we've put them into a list that we call No Longer Orphans. And you'll, you'll find it in your participant's guide in the notes for session two. And I'd like to invite you uh, to declare these incredible truths together with me, to declare our new identity as a son or daughter uh, of the King of Kings. And if you're doing this following the video, I would invite you to do the same. Just de declare this out loud with us. Father God, thank you that you did not leave me as an orphan. Thank you that I can now cry to you, Abba, Father. I refuse to believe the lie that I am an orphan. I choose to believe the truth that I have been born into your family and am now your much-loved child. 
I refuse to believe the lie that in order for you to love me, I have to do things to please you. I choose to believe the truth that you love me just as I am because you are love. I refuse to believe the lie that I have to strive for your attention. I choose to believe the truth that you always give me your full attention. I refuse to believe the lie that you will reject me if I don't perform well. I choose to believe the truth that you accept me completely even when I fail. I refuse to believe the lie that I have to provide for myself. I choose to believe the truth that you promise to give me everything I need. I refuse to believe the lie that I can trust only myself. I choose to believe the truth that you promise to help me and I can trust you completely. I refuse to believe the lie that no one really knows me or cares about me. I choose to believe the truth that you knew me before the creation of the world and that Jesus would have died just for me if I had been the only person who needed him to. I refuse to believe the lie that I have to compare myself to others. I choose to believe the truth that I am unique and that you value and love me for who I am. I refuse to speak badly of myself. I choose to speak about myself the same way you speak about me. I refuse to believe the lie that I deserve punishment or illness. I choose to believe the truth that Jesus took all the punishment I deserved. I declare that I want to be whole, well, and fruitful. And by your grace, that is what I will be. Amen. At the age of 30, um, um, we had our first child. The first five weeks were absolutely great, and then... Unfortunately, tragedy struck. So we had a house fire, and as a result of that, um, my daughter Annie died in hospital three days later. As you can imagine, that was uh, traumatic. Then I got stuck back into life. If you'd met me then, you'd have seen this guy who was very successful. I, I had a great teaching career. I kept getting promoted. And then 12 years later, after Annie had died, I couldn't push it down anymore. And so I started to develop, which, which became later known as PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder along with complicated grief syndrome. Panic attacks, um, anxiety, um, I was on medication. I found myself unable to be with my family. Maybe I was scared that I couldn't protect them the way I hadn't been able to protect my daughter. I, I then started having an affair, which was again an incredibly crazy thing for me to do. And so my life began to fall apart. My career fell apart, my marriage fell apart, relationships, my kids fell apart. It was just this black mass of just hurt, uh, anguish, pain, if I'd be with psychologists, psychiatrists, um, really struggling to, to deal with what happened. And of course, everyone could point back to the death of my daughter as being the key, but it's how do you deal with that? How do you unpack all that stuff? Uh, I came across a, a, 
a lady. And we met up and we just started talking and found out we had a lot in common and, and we could talk about stuff. And she was the one really who drew me back into church. I read about this conference and I recognised the guy who was this, this, this guy who was leading the conference. And I read his biography and yes I was at school with him in Nigeria at the age of six and I said Duncan and he looked at me and went I recognize your smile because I have this funny curved smile and uh, I started to tell him about my daughter dying and my marriage breaking up and my career breaking up he just stopped me and said Nick what's the problem and I said well my daughter's died he said no no what's the problem and I said actually Duncan the real problem is I don't trust God because I felt that he had let me down Uh, He had not done the things that I thought he promised he would do. And I wanted him to ask me for forgiveness. Duncan said to me, very straightforward, you know that God is not to blame, Nick. He never wanted this for your daughter or for you. And so he led me through this prayer where basically I said sorry to God for ever blaming him for what happened. And the only way I can describe it is a kind of um, pure gold. Uh, kind of silk poured into my heart that was kind of warm. You know, that very same day, all the PTSD symptoms had gone, um, completely disappeared. I can say life is good again and say God is good. You know, if you have something in you that where you hold something against someone, once that's cleared out the way, then um, things like healing can actually take place. Could really knowing your true identity help your health. There was a really interesting study carried out among the Pima Indians of Arizona. Uh, It was to work out how to encourage them to make positive lifestyle changes. They divided them into two groups, and one group was given health information about exercise and nutrition. Another group was given that too, but also took part in regular discussions with local leaders about Pima culture and history which made them feel good about their heritage. Well, a year later, the group that took part in the discussions was doing better on weight, waist circumference, blood glucose levels, and insulin levels. Isn't that interesting? Improving their self-esteem had a significant effect on their behaviour, which in turn had a positive effect on their physical health. Okay, key question for you then. How is your self-esteem? Or, to put it another way, what beliefs do you hold about who you are? And I hope that you would come straight back at me with, well, Steve, I am a prince or princess, a child of God who is secure, significant and accepted because, by the way, that is the truth. It's what God says. We know our identity We will live accordingly. We won't give in to the world's pressure, for example, not to use the gift of sexual intimacy outside marriage, where God says it should be. The thing is, if we don't know our identity and we don't know that God's laws are there for our protection, we might just be persuaded to get involved in casual sex outside marriage or believe the lie that it doesn't really matter. But very often... That will just leave us feeling empty, worthless, ashamed. And, of course, our self-esteem will suffer. The world has a real focus on having great physical health. But perhaps we're starting to realise that a better focus would be knowing the truth and living accordingly. Now, I've already hinted at the second danger, which is expressed well by Galatians 6, verse 7. 
do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. In other words, our actions have consequences. God loves us and tells us what is good for us and what is bad for us. If we choose to do what is bad for us, we will face the consequences. When God made a covenant with Israel, it included blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And those curses, interestingly, included disease and plague. So no matter how much we kid ourselves that eating and drinking sugary things to excess is okay, sooner or later, we will reap what we sow in terms of ill health. And being a Christian is not going to protect us from that. There are some interesting biblical examples. So Egypt suffered deadly plagues when Pharaoh disobeyed God. King Uzziah's pride led him into disobedience, and the consequence for him was leprosy. There was a guy called Elymas, a sorcerer, who was struck blind when he blatantly opposed God. The Corinthians were sick, and Paul says that the reason for that is they were eating and drinking judgment on themselves. They were handling the bread and the wine wrongly. Now, not all sickness comes from disobedience, but biblically it's clear that some does. And the Bible tells us that we have an enemy in the spiritual realm called the devil or Satan or whatever. And it's interesting that when Jesus healed people, sometimes he just healed the illness. The implication being, I think, that that illness had a a physical root, a deformity, a virus or whatever. But in other healings, he cast out a demon and then the person became well. And the conclusion I think you can draw in those instances and generally is that a possible cause of a health issue is that a demon has some kind of influence in a person's life, which is something we struggle to get our heads around, those of us brought up with a Western worldview. But we have to look at it as God says it is. The third danger is that we can allow the devil a foothold in our life through sin, and this could potentially lead to sickness. Now, it's really important um, for me to put your minds at rest. It's important for you to know that you are a child of God, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms right now, far above Satan. And he just does not have the power to march into your life and make you sick. In fact, he cannot touch you unless you give him ground to, unless you let him. This is an interesting verse. It's John 14, verse 30. And Jesus is talking about the way Satan works and kind of using legal language. And what he says to his disciples is this. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. That's Satan. He has no claim on me. He has no claim on me. So how might Satan get a claim on somebody, and particularly someone who's a Christian? Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 show us the mechanism. It says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, anger isn't sinful. It's just an emotion. But what Paul is saying here is if we don't deal with it pretty quickly, it turns to bitterness, which is a sin, and we give the devil a foothold, a claim on us. There's there's a similar uh, mechanism outlined in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says that 
if a child of God whose spirit is joined to God's spirit has sex with a prostitute, they become one flesh. And the implication is that this isn't just a physical bonding, there is a spiritual bonding that happens. And so sin gives the enemy a claim on us. And I think a good way to understand this is that it gives the enemy a place of influence in our lives, that's all. But it is a way to hold us back. And that sexual sin can create an unhealthy spiritual bond with another person. How many times have you seen somebody drawn back to the same unhelpful relationship again and again, even though they know it's damaging them, or to the same kind of sin again and again? Um, In Revelation 2, those spiritual bonds are explicitly linked to sickness. The church in Thyatira is warned that sickness will come unless they repent of sexual immorality. I'm giving you a lot of verses you probably don't hear preached very much on a Sunday. But they're there. They're truth. However... The great news, the wonderful thing, is that no matter what your past sin might be, or even what you're caught in at the moment, it does not change your identity as a holy one. These footholds of the enemy are not so much about our salvation, they're about your fruitfulness, your wholeness as disciples of Jesus. And that will be affected if you leave those things in place. But it's straightforward, and it isn't even remotely scary to take back any ground in your life that you may have given to the enemy through sin. And Mary is going to help us understand how we can do that in a very practical way. So how can we get rid of these footholds of the enemy that can hold us back? James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. When we confess our sin and turn back to God, we submit. But we also need to resist and take back the ground that we've given the devil. And only then does he flee from us. The steps to freedom in Christ is a tool that you can use to do this. It comes in the form of a small book by Dr. Neil T. Anderson. And it's a straightforward process in which you can ask the Holy Spirit to show you areas of your life where the enemy has a claim on you through past sin. You confess the sin, turn away from it, and resist the enemy in a simple declaration. At which point we would expect any illness caused directly by that spiritual issue to be healed. I do the steps regularly. It's a bit like the spiritual equivalent of um, the annual service for your car. The steps deal with a number of areas, including false guidance, participation in occult practices and false religions. I've seen people who became mentally ill after engaging in occult activity, things like seances, using Ouija boards or after visiting a medium or fortune teller, something that God clearly warns us not to do in his word. Then deception and unforgiveness. I've seen many people get physically and emotionally well when they choose to forgive. Then there's rebellion and pride. On one occasion, I dealt with the sin of envy. And back pain that I'd had for several days instantly disappeared. Now, that's not to say that every back pain is caused by envy. But for me at that time, it appeared to be. 
It helps us break the patterns of sin that we have and covers issues from previous generations. So my mum had a lot of unusual medical conditions that were quite disabling, and I did too. And then our eldest daughter became seriously ill twice in a short period of time. And I realised that my grandfather being a Freemason might be important. So my husband and I dealt with any vows or curses that he made as a Freemason, and our daughter's been completely well ever since. And some of my conditions have resolved too. A few years ago, I had a mental breakdown. I must have been vulnerable because I live with a long-term condition. My husband had an accident, so I was looking after him. He wasn't being paid when he wasn't working, so there were financial concerns. What used to be called a mental breakdown these days is called psychosis, which means when you imagine things that aren't really there. Patterns in the wallpaper were disturbing me. Um, I was thinking that the neighbours were spying on me. It was very scary and very lonely. A psychiatrist came to the house and said, you're clearly not well. You either go into hospital or you stay at home, but we have a crisis team that will come in every day. They made sure that I was eating, I was taking medication, I was sleeping okay, and I wasn't at risk of killing myself, even though I felt that way. God put something in me, like an inner determination to move on from this. So I went to church and asked for prayer, and a lady invited me to a small group called Thought for the Week, where I got a lot of encouragement and felt safe and they were doing freedom in Christ. It helped me think right, which was a step on from some of the therapy I'd had, which was um, CBT, where you replace a negative thought with a positive one or something more realistic in the world. But this was a step on from that because it was saying, this is what the Bible says. When I did the Steps to Freedom, it was a very timely thing to do. Um, there was a lady that was facilitating the course, so we'd already got some kind of relationship and trust. And she led me through the steps. And another lady was sitting with us quietly and praying. For me, at that time, definitely it was acknowledging that there were some things that I'd done wrong, that there were things that Jesus forgave me for that I was still holding on to. How I describe it to people now is like you might be walking around with some things in your life in a rucksack, but by doing the steps to freedom one by one, those things will come out and that's how you get set free. Um, people definitely noticed after my Freedom Day that I was talking more, I didn't have my head down, my eyes were brighter, you know, I was being cheeky a bit more, but Challenges still come, but I feel like I've got a bigger toolkit and more resilience to handle it. Now, when psychologists carried out studies on people three months after completing the Steps to Freedom, the results showed a staggering 40 to 50% improvement in key areas of mental health. Things like anxiety, depression, fear, anger, tormenting thoughts, negative habits and self-esteem. So taking action at a spiritual level brought about a positive change at a mental health level. And that's a better outcome than you get from most 
medications that we would use. At the back of your participants' guide is a process called the Steps to Healing and Wholeness. And it uses the same principles as the Steps to Freedom in Christ. It's been created specifically to accompany this course and it covers issues to do with health. And we hope that you'll use it to do business with God, to resolve issues that might be holding you back. You could wait and do it all in one go at the end of the course, or you can go through it a section at a time, just as we're going through each week. The steps to freedom in Christ is preferable to do first, if you can. I just want to look briefly at psychiatric conditions here. Now, in Luke 8, we find Jesus working with a man called Legion, who lived among the tombs. Nowadays, he would be classified as or diagnosed as psychiatrically ill. But the Bible's clear that his particular condition was caused by demons. Jesus didn't give him medication. He didn't lock him up. He set him free by delivering him from the evil spirits that were tormenting him. So that he was in his right mind. Now, I've worked with a lot of psychiatric patients over the years, and they're often tormented by voices that they hear. The voices are nearly always negative. They tend to be violent, telling them to kill themselves or somebody else, or condemning, you're useless, dirty, shameful, guilty, or they bring fear. The worldview in secular psychiatry does not allow for the possibility that these voices might be coming from demons. However, a biblical worldview would acknowledge the possibility that the voice someone is hearing could be from the enemy. And it's a revelation for some people when they realize that the negative voices in their head are not necessarily their own and they don't have to listen to them. Western medicine has discovered in schizophrenia and other psychiatric illnesses that there can be an imbalance in the interaction of the serotonin, dopamine, and noradrenaline chemical pathways. Although it isn't clear whether it's the chemical imbalance that causes the symptoms, or the symptoms that cause the chemical imbalance. And antipsychotic and antidepressant medication is used to try and bring a balance and block the voices or improve the mood. And this can help people with severe mental health problems stay stable and safe and function better. And some excellent work is done by mental health teams to help manage severe mental health issues. But we rarely see cure. Now, I'm not saying that every psychiatric patient or everyone with mental illness is oppressed by demons. But what I am saying is that if we're going to adopt a biblical worldview, then it's a possibility that we need to consider. And if that turns out to be the case, then there's great hope for healing as people take over hold of their authority in Jesus Christ and they submit to God and resist the devil. So our spirit is now connected to God's spirit. And at the deepest part of our being, we are 100% restored to how we were created to be. And as we know the truth and live according to the truth, we can expect those benefits to filter through to good mental and physical health. 
so here are your keys to take home from this session, one for each day of the coming week. One, don't focus primarily on good health. Focus on knowing the truth and living accordingly. Two, your spirit, the real you, is now alive and connected to God. Three, your deepest needs for security, significance and acceptance are now perfectly met in Jesus Christ. Four, you are no longer an orphan. You are a child of God. Five, we reap what we sow. And that applies to health as much as any other area. Six, unresolved sin issues can be a root of physical, mental and emotional illness. But it's straightforward to remove them. And seven, we cannot say whether the root of any particular illness is spiritual, mental or physical. But we can rule out a spiritual route by going through a regular spiritual checkup, such as the steps to freedom in Christ. Next time, we're going to look at the crucial area of the mind. We'll see you then. <laughs>